Happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 18. Over the last week, you might have looked up into the night sky and noticed that the moon seemed a little bit larger and brighter. This isn't your mind playing tricks on you, we just experienced the super moon, which occurs when you have a full moon during the time when the moon is closest to the Earth. The next super moon, though not so super, will be on December 14th. Mark your calendar, because the next supermoon won't happen until 2034. Speaking of the moon, our guest this week is Daniel Andrews, who is working on a NASA mission to eventually mine the moon called Resource Prospector. We discuss the early phases of this mission and go into detail on his previous work on LCROSS, which confirmed hidden water ice on the moon. We talk about his love for robotics and how this all builds towards our journey to Mars. Without any delay, here is Daniel Andrews. First of all, Dan, welcome. Thank you. Um, how did you get to NASA in the first place? Or how did you get to Silicon Valley, but also how did you join NASA? So I grew up in the Bay Area. I actually grew nice. up out in, uh, in Livermore. And then okay. uh, I learned that I wanted to become an electrical engineer through the most bizarre okay. way. So As I, all kids do. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> so I'm, I'm in a class. I don't remember what class it was, but it was some... Um, uh, probably a drafting class or something like that. And I noticed that there were some kids in the back of the lab okay. snickering. All right. right. They're not part of this class. They're just in the back. And what they were doing was they were playing with a function generator and running the frequencies up super high above human hearing. Okay. And getting the whole class to start becoming agitated. And I was watching the behavior of the whole class start to really? go crazy. And I'm watching these guys snickering back there. And the power that was involved in what they were doing just, I found fascinating. <laughs> and how, how do you, okay, so how do you figure out how that's even happening? Like, I said, this electricity stuff's pretty cool. I had to look that's, into this some more. And that's so a completely I, different view of like the cool kids in the back. They're like making everybody angry. Oh, yeah, they were, they were, they were. Troublesome, but uh, it was it was fantastic. And then you add that to my sort of natural tech interest, and, uh, and being basically in the Bay growing area. up in the Bay Area, Silicon totally. Valley, it all added up. And so, yeah. oh wow, did you stay here for school? Did you get out a little I, bit? Or? Yeah, I went to San Jose State for okay. uh, my double E degree, and then later went for my uh, mechanical engineering master's at Stanford. And um, Love robotics, and so I did the crossover thing in order to be able to speak to both sides of the world. And you found the place with perfect weather, so why So why go anywhere else? I don't think I fully appreciated that at the time, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, you, live, you live on the East Coast and come back. You'll appreciate it. All my in-laws are uh, back there. So <laughs> so um, did you come straight from you know finishing grad school right into NASA? Was it an internship or anything like that? Actually, or did you go private s- for a little straight bit? Out of, um, straight out of my bachelor's degree, my double degree, I came to NASA. And then after a couple okay. of years, I did full-time graduate study through NASA. Okay. So at Ames the whole time? Yep. The oh, whole wow. Time. I did a little stint at uh, General Electric while I was okay. uh, getting my double degree uh, in their nuclear energy business operations, <laughs> which is all gone now. Oh, wow. It was basically uh, the reactor people. And that was really great learning. Talk about some big power there. Yes, literally and figuratively. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then, when you were at when you were at NASA, what kind of stuff did you work on as a student? 
So I I was uh, I wasn't a student yet. Or okay, I, mean, I was done being a student. You're kind of going back and forth. And, yeah. and so I worked on some really interesting robotic devices. I had okay. a, a wing flipper. It was called the CPRA, and it was this maybe a foot long wing that would sit between two glass discs and we'd have to flip it from zero to 60 degrees in really? milliseconds. I mean, this was crazy okay. performance that we had to put together. And the whole idea was when you flip a wing that quickly, you actually develop this huge lift off of it. Okay. And if you could adapt that to large scale aircraft, you might be able to save tons of fuel across okay. an entire like fuel fleet. efficiency. So it's understanding that physics of that mm-hmm. and then applying it to a large scale. And I remember when I first came here, uh, I was doing something called an accelerated training program. And the idea is mm-hmm. you give your fresh outs who just hire in, yeah. you give them something interesting to work on and you have them talk about it, learning how to speak to technology and speak in front of others and that okay. type of thing. And after I gave this presentation, this incredible model I'd come up with, the 26-order <laughs> model, you know, just crazy. Uh, the division chief looks over at the branch chief, both of them my bosses, nice. and said, I thought we only gave jobs that were possible to our new hires. Oh. And so I knew I had it right then, because if I failed, it was already oh. okay. But if I succeeded... Even better. Oh, I did the oh, impossible. Oh, you knock it out of the park. Yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, wow. So... Um so then from that, like, where, where are you currently? What, are you, what kind of stuff are you working on? Uh, how is that leverage into where you are? Yeah, so what happened, I think this is kind of natural through um, a technologist or engineer's career, is I was working on a bunch of different uh, things. I mm-hmm. worked on uh, modernizing and automating facilities, some of the wind tunnels around here. That okay. was a good nine-year chunk of my career. Then wanted to do something a little more fun, and so a uh, – <laughs> A mechanical engineer and friend of uh, mine and I, we built a three-axis robotic table for studying uh, <laughs> microbial mats, you know, which might oh. be thought to be similar right. to how life on Venus might look. And okay. so I built this whole robotic table. Uh, the PSA, Personal Satellite Assistant, did a bunch okay. of work and led a team there for this floating ball a la Star Wars that could be an assistant for astronauts uh, okay. on, on long-term space travel or on ISS okay. uh, to provide information, to relay, to do sensing, all that type of stuff. That's not, is that the Spheres program? Spheres was actually a competing or, program. Really? And it has since adopted a bunch of the PSA technologies that were there. Hey. But it was great. It forces was combined. Yes, exactly. Um, and then eventually I started moving up into like group leadership type positions and so okay. forth. And then um, most recently in 2009 was the uh, project manager of the Cross mission, okay, which, yeah. which discovered water on the moon. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no big deal. Water on the moon. It was unthinkable. All in a day. <laughs> it was All unthinkable. I mean, we know the moon very well. It's dry as heck. And, and, yeah. and yet, um, data from like the early 70s mm-hmm. um, and then on forward into the 90s in particular um, had indicated that there's some curious things on the poles of the moon, on okay. the North Pole and the South Pole. Okay. Like maybe there's there's elevated hydrogen there and how's it bound up yeah could it actually be water ice is that possible no that's unthinkable yeah but we we ought to find out and so clementine missions posts uh, did some bi-static radar tests and that kind of fed the community a little more thinking this is curious it it sort of adds up but that can't be yeah right it's crazy and then lunar prospector uh came along and it was specifically trying to understand um the nature of the hydrogen in there, and sure enough, it confirmed that there's really 
elevated hydrogen signals on the north and the south pole of the moon. Wow. And in particular in these areas where the sun never shines. Yeah, I was going to say, well, because the, the moon having its face fixed at us, it's like you probably never, you never really see that point of view. And it gets really warm odd. on the surface of the moon, the, the parts that happen yep. to be facing at the sun, quite hot. But the polar regions... The sun's shooting over That's the right. top of yeah. it. And so these craters, they're formed from billions of years of impacts from the asteroids. Shadows, the shadows and Yeah, the shadows, they say in permanent shadow. And so what's going on? There's this elevated hydrogen signal. So the Elcross mission was mm-hmm. specifically a very tactical mission to go understand yeah. if that elevated hydrogen signal could be water ice. Okay. And sure enough, we confirmed it was, which wow. which just rewrote the books on the moon as a resource and even the history of it. And, so and was that one like the satellite that went around the moon? It was or a very was it? interesting project in many okay. different ways. It was also a super cost-effective project. Okay. So it kind of created a new paradigm there, too. But the way it worked, think of a school bus. Okay. Think of a VW bug. Okay. <laughs> yes. Attach them. All, All right. right. So the school bus is the rocket that brought us to the moon. Okay. We emptied out all the propellant. We got it completely inert, as they say. It's Nothing em- in it. It's an empty school bus. It's a big, empty aluminum can. Okay. Right? And then this, this VW bug that's attached to it, that's our spacecraft. Okay. And it's now in control. So it drags it in actually an Earth orbit, a polar Earth orbit, meaning okay. going over each of the poles, while the moon is circula- circulating around the equator, in effect. Okay. And we time it such that our spacecraft that's in this Earth polar orbit comes up from underneath and smacks a crater of our choice at the <laughs> south side of the moon. Oh, south wow. Of the moon. And so we did that. And as we're coming in close, yeah. the school bus and the VW bug separate. Okay. We slow down the uh, VW bug. VW, okay, while, while, while the while bus the is school bus is just screaming, screaming at it. in it and accelerating just because of lunar gravity. We didn't yes. shoot it at it. We literally just, just let go. Let and nature take its course. Physics did its thing. <laughs> and when it impacted the, uh, the VW bug, uh, the shepherding <laughs> spacecraft, what it's really called, flew in right behind it, taking live measurements and okay. even flew through the plume of what was ejected and, up, and firing back live, fire back, fire All back, fire data. only to die itself, an <laughs> inevitable death, <laughs> down in the bottom of that crater. Exactly. Oh, right. And after doing a bunch of post-analysis and all that, the found VW that significant the, amounts of water. It's the real MVP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you took one for the team. So, so that, mission, awesome. that mission is fantastic. And uh, one of the things that I think people who remember that mission uh, to this day still don't fully appreciate is that uh, there was great expectation of a huge explosion. I yeah. mean, we hit the moon at 5,600 miles an hour. Okay. How is that not going to cause a huge explosion? Yeah, still, the moon's pretty big. It's pretty big, but you Compared, should be able to see think, this like ejecta just something. coming off of it. it yeah. Through telescopes, and certainly LRO uh, was looking at it as it was orbiting. It was already in orbit. Okay. We, of course, okay. launched to the moon with LRO. Wow. And so um, that wasn't seen, though. What okay. happened? There's a lot of disappointed people. But what's sure interesting is from a science point of view, mm-hmm. it was a bookend of what could happen. On one end, it could be a light show. We hit a bunch of you know really large rocks, and all this light comes out from the explosion. Ejecta goes all over. The other end of the spectrum, though, which isn't as attractive, isn't as yeah. fun, is that it's soft, soft silt, just the downiest <laughs> fluff down there. And sure enough, when we hit... We didn't see thermal signatures mm-hmm. until 
a fraction of a second after it hit, at 5,600 miles an hour, you're pretty deep before you're starting yeah. to see heat coming out of it. Okay. It was an indication that in those permanent shadows, it could be completely fluffy, downy silt in there. Wow. And it's potentially from all the energetics, the sun, cooking the soil all mm -hmm. around the permanent shadow and everything bouncing off and falling in there for a couple billion years. Oh, wow. Completely uh, alien, if you will, mm -hmm. environment compared to what you know we might have thought was there. So locally, kind of disappointing. Where's the big show? But huge science came out of that. Well, I was gonna say I have this these ideas of all of these astronaut or all all of these you know astronomers hanging around popping bottles of champagne, ready for a show. And, and of course, it was the middle of the night, what? so people are very invested in seeing it. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's here waiting for the show. Now, after the fact, not to the <laughs> not to the naked eye, but in the infrared and mm -hmm. in other spectral signatures, you could see the plume and you could wow. see the ejecta. And of course, that's what was measured both from Earth, but in particular from this shepherding spacecraft that flew in behind and measured it directly. Yeah, right I mean, that would have been a big light show, but man, the science you actually oh, get from huge. that and yeah. knowing what is there. We wrote like, the oh. books about that. And so, enter Resource Prospector. Okay, right? that's what you're working on now. That's what I'm right? working on now, exactly. Oh, yeah. We called RP Resource Prospector. Okay. And its whole function is, okay, so we know there's water ice there. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Answered. Check. Thank you, L. Cross. Mm -hmm. But What's its nature? Is it something we can use? What's, okay. its, what's its horizontal distribution? And even vertical distribution, like how deep is it? Can we go somewhere relevant on either the North or South Pole with a rover-based system okay. and actually sample what's there and, and do a bit of a mapping, sort okay. of a prospecting mission, hence the name of the mission? Okay. And then even further, go beyond that, could we have a drill on that system that actually would excavate from as deep as a meter okay. and cook the soil right inside the rover okay. and bake out whatever's there, including water vapor if you, if you go where there's water ice? It's good to know. <laughs> if you can show that it's there, if you could demonstrate the relative distribution and quantity, that you could actually make it, okay. uh, you know, actually volatilize it, capture it in a bottle in a very simple way, You've now potentially opened up a, a whole <laughs> new commercial marketplace mm -hmm. uh, for producing hydrogen, producing oxygen, producing water, maybe even other volatiles yeah. as just a resource that, uh, say, NASA in the future could buy it by the yard or buy it by the leader, <laughs> so to speak, um, to enable other missions. It's a, a pit stop on the journey to Mars. You have, have a gas station. You have a gas station yeah. there. And, wow. and make no mistake, since the moon is you know one-sixth the gravity of Earth, mm -hmm. the amount of propellant required to lift all of those volatiles off of Earth to go to, say, a Mars or other places mm -hmm. is incredibly costly. Wow. If you could actually gas up, if you will, at the moon, mm -hmm. if you could create this whole environment in which uh, resources like that are commercially available, it could completely rewrite what's required wow. to accomplish great, great feats from there. Use it as a as a starting point for the mission. Oh, cool. So what, what kind of stuff are you working on? Are you working on like the design of this thing or just kind of like kind of figuring out what kind of science you want to grab from it? Or so we're in all? what's called phase A, which okay. is, is a formulation part of a mission. Okay. okay? And um, what we're trying to figure out is how would you navigate in these very strange places on the moon? Mm -hmm. We're going to land in a sunny area because it makes life much easier. Yes. You know, okay. It's, it's not 70 degrees Kelvin, which is something like minus 333 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> super duper cold. Yeah. 
Um, and we're just laying out the whole mission. How long can we live there? Can we time it such that we have a little bit of sun because we'd be a solar array-powered uh, rover? But then night will fall eventually okay. by the nature of the motion of the moon with time. Absolutely. And then we'll probably freeze. We're, we're not going to design the system to survive the lunar okay, night. Okay, no battery packs. Oh, well, well, we have batteries to charge, battery. but not not a system to be able to survive to the be, type of cold that we're talking <laughs> about here. But we think we can answer the questions be, without needing that. Oh, cool. And part of what this agency is looking for from this mission is not just these fundamental questions, but to do some of those low-cost, efficient approaches that we did on Elcross and, nice. and kind of move them up to this bigger scale. Oh, wow. So, um, so like for, for somebody who has no clue on how like you know NASA's organized, put together. So, is this just like uh, primarily a team that's here? Is it like spread out through other places in the agencies? Like a big been, group of people. Yeah, offices? exactly. I've been very happy to see yeah. that we've been able to draw some of the best and brightest from around the agency. Mm-hmm. So, for people who do know a uh, number of the agencies, NASA AIM or number of the centers, NASA yeah. AIMS, NASA Kennedy, NASA Johnson, NASA Marshall, um, they're all participating in this mission in areas in which they have expertise. Okay. So AIMS is leading the mission um, for the whole cost-effective you know, yeah. approach and the demonstrated things that we have on LCROSS and a number of the other things. But, for example, the rovers being developed between Johnson and Ames. The payload system is being led out of uh, NASA Kennedy mm-hmm. with participation by NASA Johnson and Ames and others. So it's That's a really cool. good mix. Makes it a little complicated to to manage all that, but yeah. um, it's a really great. But it's team. like a oh, everybody kind of working together. Yeah. So I so I bet you got to be like over the over the moon. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're just thinking of you know you're thinking of you know journey to Mars. Thinking of the SLS rocket. That's got to be huge for you guys. Is you know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what what this information could enable. Yeah. The SLS type missions, supportable missions, could mm-hmm. potentially, um, yeah, it, it could be, it could be really very, very enabling from a standpoint of the portfolio. If okay. if this saves a fair amount of money, mm-hmm. um, we could do more things uh, mm-hmm. for the same amount of money. It's really, it's really quite. Yeah, I've been thinking of. You know, we're talking about efficiency and innovative ways of doing things. I, I, I sat talking with somebody about, you know, the small satellites and stuff like that, where they're not the primary thing that's on the rocket going up, right. but they like to hitch a ride. Sure. Um, I'm guessing that you're kind of thinking the same thing of like, how can we kind of work around and figure out how to. Well, we're planning on enough, a bunch of different options. One yeah. of the options is um, a standard ELV, you know, which is an expendable launch vehicle, like, okay. like a. Um, like a Falcon 9 rocket, although they're demonstrating capabilities to be able to return parts back, so it's not expendable oh, so much anymore. Cool. Yeah, so uh, we're designing around that type of mission, uh, a launch vehicle. But there's a number of different options that we're exploring, and we're in conversations within NASA about that right now. Cool. Obviously, you have a really cool job, working on really cool stuff. All right, so if you, you're going to go to a different office, or let's say you're going to go somewhere else in NASA, or think of your colleagues, what are some of the things that you're just like, Oh wow, that's really cool! I w- like either you want to, or you're or just a distant admirer of other things that are happening around here. I uh, I really am a fan of robotics in general. Wow! Despite all the really interesting stuff I've had the fortune to work with, mm-hmm. I still find the idea of robotics and human interaction 
uh, like like the personal satellite assistant robot that could okay. actually be everything from your uh, clock radio that wakes you up <laughs> in the morning to a relay where you could see your family back on Earth while you're on mission nice. to um, a safety bot which actually goes while you, the astronaut, are sleeping to uh, sniff the environment, right? Okay. Sniff any gases that might be leaking out of a a line or a fire, that type of thing. And Design Systems just does all that for you. I just find that. A nice little buddy that hangs out with you. Exactly. It's protecting you, watching your back. Yeah. (laughs) You got to be careful, though, because when we were testing that thing, we built a really cool facility here, and we actually could fly it in the facility. It actually allowed the robot to behave like it was in zero G. Okay. Oh, which is a whole fascinating thing in and of itself. I, I know. I'm just trying to. Think, how does that happen? But the ball, <laughs> the rover, the rover, the robot that we were building, um, in order to fit all the electronics into it, had to be kind of big mm-hmm. because you couldn't fit it down into our ideal goal of say a six or eight inch. Okay. You know, sphere. Okay. So this thing was like a beach ball. Okay. And it had all these motor fans in it to be able to fly through this environment in 1G here on Earth inside of this interesting crane thing that we had built. We called it the microgravity test facility. But the problem was those fans were screaming and it sounded like a bunch of angry cats. (laughs) And so you have a thing the size of a beach ball that weighs probably, you know, 20 pounds, screaming Screaming like like cats (laughs) coming right at you. And we were thinking, we're never going to be able to test this, you know, in a real environment Mm -hmm. because... It'll just be terrifying to anyone who's around it. But the whole idea is that's how you start with technology, right? Yeah. You don't solve the packaging problem right away. You you learn from your early stuff and I then guess shrink it. In a vacuum, you wouldn't hear it, though. But remember, <laughs> it's inside an environment with the humans. So oh, okay, there's okay. plenty of air. But you're right. Um, like spheres, like you brought up earlier. Yeah. If that's outside... You know, mm-hmm. the crude area when it's out in space or a system. Yeah. yeah. You're in the vacuum space. So obviously fans aren't going to work either. Uh, yeah. So you need to have compressed gas of some sort or something in order to move around. And for folks who are confused on what spheres is, you can search that, look at the International yeah. Space Station, and you'll, you'll see these cool little balls that are floating around in space. Yeah. So for anybody who wants to figure out or learn a little bit more about what you're working on, where's kind of the pl- best place to go? If you just search, uh, you could just Google search for Resource Prospector okay. NASA. Uh, we have a whole website there. It'll take you right to right. it. And, Good old NASA.gov. Um, yeah, exactly. And we have a number of videos up there. This year oh, we've awesome. been doing testing okay. of a uh, kind of a miracle project that we did last year in 2015. Okay. I challenged the team at the beginning of the year that uh, can we build – design, build, and actually test a rover system like what we would fly on the moon in a single year. Oh, wow. From idea, requirements, all the way through, procurement, all all that stuff. Get it all done. And we did. We did in uh, like nine to ten months, depending on when you declare finished. And then by the end of the year, we had actually flown it like we would fly. I'm doing air quotes here. (laughs) Like we would fly on the moon, except it was located in Houston. The rover and the payload that's inside it and the drill and all that stuff I was describing is in Houston. Ames Research Center is where the principal mission operations are. Uh, Payload was controlled out of Kennedy, and this is how we would do it 
yeah. uh, on the real mission. Yeah. Uh, we were communicating with it over wireless. So instead of the deep space network, which is what we would use for the yeah. moon, that's okay. We use something else. But but our behavior, our procedure, very impressive. This little rover that could. It, uh, oh, it was wow. very exciting. Running it around relevant environments, doing drilling, sampling, uh-huh. and so forth. So there's videos of that. And then this uh, most recently, we've been running it through yeah. – uh, some tough testing. <laughs> you kind of put beating it, it up a little bit? Beating it up a little bit because that's how you learn. So mm-hmm. we've put it in vacuum chambers where it's having to work without any air to help cool things and then chilling it down too. So now all the uh, lubricants and things in the moving joints are struggling. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just really beating it up, but frankly, beating it up in a way that it'll have to survive on the moon. So we should yeah. learn about that now. Well, as they say, space is hard. And Space so you really got to be <laughs> you got to be a little bit rough to it to make sure that it can especially what take we're it. doing. I mean 70 degrees yeah. Kelvin is really cold. No so even the way metal moves around is 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 very complicated. Yeah, even your risky. materials, everything yes. just like you have to anticipate Cabling, all that. how insulation works. Uh, what abrading does where you're rubbing two wires next to each other because they're attached to a wheel that you wow. know is moving and it's just all very um it's just all very unknown, and you have to test for all. Not that. only does it have to function, it has to be able to survive the vibration of a rocket launch. It has to get out there, survive our conditions, prove right. that it works, and then all the modified con- or the different conditions it's in. Well, wow. In, wow. in fact, what usually happens with these missions is the the violence of launch, meaning yeah. the launch vehicle itself, can many times be the most defining capability of the system to just wow. survive launch. Meaning. After you've launched and you're an orbital spacecraft or even, you know, it's less than what you've had to endure to just survive. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so the launch vehicle part that we were talking about earlier is very important to understand how it performs. And everyone has its own characteristics. And your system has to survive that. Otherwise, you've just, you know, spent all these years working on it. And then when you go to deploy it or go to land on the surface, fail, right? So. wow. We do, we do a lot of testing like this, and including vibration testing. That's something we've just recently done. We put the rover up on a uh, vibration table, and you could see all of its panels <laughs> shaking and yeah. standing waves where you could just see like a, a sinusoidal shape, an S shape going through the panels. Um, and, and we're looking to see stuff fall off. We're looking to see, yeah. uh, in some cases, we were actually operating equipment while I was going through Vibe and seeing if... Um, uh, bearings held up, seeing you know anything that can go wrong. Just trying to get smarter about it now, and and it's been fantastic because we've uh, learned about materials changes we have to make. Oh wow! Uh, just getting smarter, smarter, smarter. That's awesome. Well, so if for anybody who's listening who's got like questions, we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley, and on Twitter we're at NASA Ames. Dan, this has been awesome. Cool. It's been Great. fun to be here. <laughs> <laughs>